Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Tuesday, February 7th, and welcome to another Ben Jarofsky Show, brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and every now and again, what kind of pots you can find in the dispensaries in Chicago. So much more, including columns from your very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out the show, you can. It's really easy. Just go to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. A lot of cool stuff there. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Up, Up, and Away Tuesday. And here's why. One of my favorite songs in the 60s. I don't know if it's my favorite song. I really like it a lot. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Uh, The Fifth Dimension, Up, Up, and Away in my beautiful balloon. That's enough singing today, Ben. Up, up, and away, my beautiful balloon. Everybody in the country, everybody in the world was watching that Chinese balloon that floated over the United States, crossing the Canadian border. Suddenly, the Canadian border was an obsessive thing that people were following on Fox, as opposed to the Mexican border. First time ever, they realized that there was a border with Canada. Oh, my God, there's a balloon. <laughs> you know, they always try to get us scared about something. So everybody was on both sides. I hate to say it. Damn, you were doing it too. Blinken, State Department, Biden. You guys were all trying to get us scared about the Chinese balloon that's spying on us. And Fox, of course, you know, because it's China. We're just going berserk. This wouldn't happen under Trump, even though it did. Uh, so, yeah, we were supposed to be really scared of the Chinese balloon. But the fact of the matter was a balloon. So nobody was really as scared of it. Everybody was like making jokes about it. They were tr- following its path, you know, and they were recording it and dropping videos on TikTok, which, ladies and gentlemen, is owned by a company based in China. Yeah, there you go. Blow your mind. Supposedly, TikTok, this is the fear, is gathering information on Americans who subscribe to it that the Chinese can do use to what? Interfere in our election? Wait a minute. That's the Russians. That's They're the ones who do that. Aren't they the allies of MAGA? Donald Trump's best friend? It's so hard to be afraid of something when there's so much inconsistency and mixed messages coming from all sides. Got to be afraid of China. You know what? It's not, it, my distinguished guest had a great line, which I will now. I'll, I'll give him credit for it. I was going to steal it and just uh, <laughs> use it. Not give him any credit. But I wrote it down. It was so good. He goes, you know, uh, I never heard anyone in the United States complaining about China when we were taking advantage of their cheap labor, moving good union jobs over to China uh, and lowering the production costs. Uh, Keeping, uh, by the way, I want to say uh, profits huge for the companies that were uh, selling these various devices to Americans. They didn't like bring down the price. You know, to compensate uh, to, to, for the money they were saving on labor. I didn't hear anybody complain. In fact, it was just the opposite. I can remember, oh, my God, in the state of Illinois, in the city of Chicago, 
oh, Governors Edgar and Thompson. I think Ryan may have even done it. I know Pat Quinn may have flown. He flown over to China. It's a trade mission to China. And they would like pack all their friends onto an airplane and fly to China and eat really well for about a week. We're doing this not because we're enjoying a vacation and the fabulous cuisine, Ben. You need to understand we're doing this to develop contacts. This is how it works, Ben. This is how the world works. There are no more borders. Okay. Capital has to flow freely from one country to the next, as opposed to labor, which, you know, lock them up at the border. The capital can come in, the money can come in, but the laborers, you go sit in a cell for a while and think about it. That's what I was told for the 80s, the 90s, the O's. I think it was Mayor Daly. Oh, God, this is really strange. Mayor Daly, I always got scared when he would leave the country because he would see something, whatever city he was visiting (laughs) on one of these trade missions, he would see something that he would want. And then whether it was practical, whether Chicago needed it, whether we could afford it, we're getting it because Mayor Daly wants it. And I believe, maybe my distinguished guest will know this better than I correct me. I believe it was when he went to China that he saw like the express trains from the central city, Beijing, to the airport. And he came back and goes, we need an underground bullet train to O'Hare. Even though we had the blue line, which goes through my distinguished guest war, by the way. We had the blue line. It was a direct thing already. Mayor Daly. And you know what? They're so afraid of Mayor Daly that they, no one wanted to tell him. A bus. We already have this thing called the Blue Line, which goes directly from O'Hare downtown. No one wanted to do that. They wanted to, you don't want to tell Daly. I get all mad at Red. I'll yell at you like your name is Bob Fioretti. Remember when you got mad at Fioretti, the city council got all red? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. So we almost had the bullet, the ROM sign onto that one, too. Anyway, the, the idea came from a trip to China. That's why I always said, Mayor David, please don't go anywhere. Please just stay in Chicago. Maybe Okay, I'll let you go to Michigan. Go visit your summer home in Michigan and then come back to Chicago. Anyway, so yes, we were supposed to be. Uh, uh, back then, we were partners with China. Now we're very, very uh, afraid of them. Uh, that it didn't hold, though. There's just something about a balloon. You know, it's not scary. So people weren't scared. People were having fun with it. I haven't seen people have so much fun with a tele with a, a news event since the alligator in Humboldt Park in Chicago. Remember those good old days in the summer of 2019 when there was an alligator in Humboldt Park? And it was like, that's all anybody would talk to. We're going out live to the lagoon, Humboldt Park. There's an alligator in the lagoon. Billy Bob, what's the latest? Well, Joe, nothing's changed in the last hour. <laughs> but I'm going to give you an update. The alligator. Yeah, so the balloon was that much fun. I had fun with the Chinese government's uh, response. They said it was not true uh, that it was a spy balloon. It was a a meteorological balloon. It was a balloon that was doing weather surveys or something. And it went off course, which was like one of the worst lies I've ever heard. You know, and I was like, oh, what a terrible lie. How many, how could anyone believe it? But then I started thinking, is that any worse than the lies that I've been fed, that you've been fed, Chicagoans? Don't act like you haven't been spoon-fed them, too. Like when they tell you, here comes one of my favorite topics, when they tell you that TIFs don't raise your property taxes. They tell you that every year. And then your property taxes go up. And you go, how could this be? My city leaders said that the TIFs don't raise the property taxes. Is that any worse of a lie than it was a weather balloon? 
as opposed to a spy balloon? Huh? How about this one from Mayor Rahm's era? Remember when he swore up and down he never saw the little Quan McDonald videotape? I did not see it until the rest of you saw it. I'm not even sure if he's ever owned up to seeing it. I can't remember at the moment. He sure fought like hell to keep the rest of us from seeing it. That's for sure. About a year's worth of fighting in the court, a FOIA request. I don't know if it was a full year, several months. So they're always feeding us BS. So I don't know why I should get so down on the Chinese government because their lie is so obvious and blatant. Anyway, they shot the balloon down, so we don't have anything to worry about at all. Life is good. <laughs> we can go back to this beautiful existence in the city of Chicago. All right, without further ado, I'm going to introduce my distinguished guest, former alderman of the 45th Ward, political junkie extraordinaire, John Arena. Welcome to my humble podcast. John, I think this is your second visit. It's been a long time since you were uh, last here. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. This is great. Yeah. And uh, thank you for that line about China. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I always think about, should I just steal it? But nah, I got to give you credit. But uh, what, your point was a good one. I've been thinking about it ever since you made it, which is they didn't complain about China when they were taking advantage of the free labor. Uh, but now it's dollars DVD players, man. That that just wins people over. Yeah, and cell phones like this thing from Apple, which is like wor worthless after two years. So you got to go buy another one. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's move away from international news and talk about local news. Uh, I was trying to think of the most boring topic uh in the world to talk with you about you have an expertise uh in local government you were an alderman from the 45th ward uh for eight years you were an independent uh battling all-powerful mayor uh mayor Rahm, and uh, he hated you detested you i should say uh for your efforts so why don't we just start with this concept uh that's been uh floating around uh that somehow or other chicago is about uh to embark on the new age of democracy, small d democracy, that we're gonna allow the Chicago City Council, the same city council that basically told people like you to sh shut up, sit down, don't come up with any new ideas. Uh, we're, we're supposedly entering a new phase where everyone's committed to uh, listening to each other and allowing minority voices uh, to be heard. And maybe we can change our mind when we hear the good ideas. Uh, as opposed to the traditional autocracy that's ruled and reigned in the city. Do you think we're heading in the direction of democracy, John Arena, or do you think uh, push comes to shove, we're going to go right back to the old Chicago autocracy uh, that uh, we've had for the last, I don't know, since Harold Washington died, all those years? Well, Ben, like you, I'm an eternal optimist. So uh, <laughs> let, I, let me set it up by comparison. So uh, we're going to have, I think there's 15 or so seats that are uh, open uh, in, in this term, uh, this election. Uh, and back in 2011, uh, when I came into city council, there was also 15 uh, open seats. And I think that, and possibly a new mayor. Back then, we absolutely knew we were going to have a new mayor because Daly wasn't running. Uh, Lightfoot's running, but you know, she's embattled right now, so we'll see uh, there's that possibility. But focusing on the council, I think one point of difference is that there was this uh, triad of Burke, O'Connor, and Mel that were basically the power centers in city council. And even though 
there was a, a number of uh, progressive aldermen, folks like me who kind of came came in looking to uh, lead and change. Um, the power centers were still there. The finances of the city, the, the budget committee, um, you know, and the rules committee, Mel was rules, Burke, of course, finance, and uh, um, uh, I believe O'Connor was was budget at the time. Uh, you know, they, that was that's where a lot of the decisions get made and the, the committees get made. And so we were pushing up against that. This cycle, Burke's gone, Mel's gone, O'Connor's gone. And I think what we've seen with this within the city council is uh, that kind of deep control of the committee structure of the of the money, which if Ed Burke gave me any good advice, which it wasn't much, but it was follow the money, John. And that's what really dictates how things go in government bodies in, in many cases. So I think that's where the optimism comes that depending on, you know, uh, the number of, of, you know, truly committed uh, folks who are, who are looking to come in and, and fight for change in a city that deeply needs to take a new tack, in my opinion, um, that's where my optimism comes in. And of course, depending on what happens with the mayor's, you know, race, there's a whole range of candidates out of the nine for people to consider. And there's that range of policy approaches that uh, they might take as well. Uh, Ed Burke told you, well, I don't think you've ever told me that, or if you did, I forgot it, to follow the money. That's a line he, he stole uh, from uh, all the president's men. Uh, a, a movie in the 70s about the Watergate break-in, mm -hmm. which a line that was supposedly Deep Throat told uh, Bob Woodward with Washington Post, but it turned out it was totally invented by the scriptwriter. Uh, <laughs> so now you got Ed Burke quoting some Hollywood scriptwriter. Uh, but it's, I mean, every reporter in the world has adopted that uh, as a goal when it comes to uh, following a city government, which is why it baffles me that... Um, the most underreported, in my humble opinion, aspect of public finance is the TIF program, which is where the money is, John. It's where the money is. So it's like in Chicago, it's follow the money. Unless, unless it's TIF, then don't follow it. Yeah. Um, exactly. I, um, I find that interesting. Follow the money. Did you ever have a sense that what, all those eight years you were in the Chicago City Council, that you were having like a legitimate debate and discussion about the source of city financing, about the impact in any of your decisions uh, on property taxes, about uh, the impact uh, on uh, ordinary Chicagoans with fines and fees. In other words, was there ever any attempt by the city council to follow Ed, Ed Burke's advice and follow the money, uh, both where it comes from and how it's spent. Well, I mean, we we were trying to force that debate. Um, the the challenge is the audience of the, the other forty, you know, city council members who didn't want to have the debate because they were perfectly fine, you know, letting things continue as they were because they were benefiting from that particular structure. But when we were fighting for, you know. Um, the debt transparency and accountability ordinance, for example, something I worked on with Alderman Sawyer and Wagusback and and uh, a few others. Um, you know, that was an attempt to say, you know, look, 
if we're going to follow the money, we have to make sure that we're not getting into some new and untested financial products, uh, not just the ones that we know about, but the ones that are yet to come. Um, credit default swaps was the subject matter at the time, right? You remember those things. They're not now because they're out of fashion because they were a travesty for, for, for our city you know, budgets and for our finances. Um, so when you're talking about stuff that might happen in the future and trying to create protections against that, that was the debate we were trying to have. Um, it's a question of, you know, as much as we want to think that our audience is the city of Chicago and its residents, it's really about, are the aldermen paying attention? Do they want to dive into some complicated financial products and a discussion about, you know, uh, how this can go horribly wrong? Or do they want to just, you know, well, the, the mayor's got good people that are working on that. But, you know, that's the budget director, Alex Holt, who had been there under the Daly administration and um, the CFO who was, you know, okay with keeping, you know, our GO bonds having a maximum uh, interest rate of 12 to 15% at a time when interest rates were three and 4%. And we had to fight to get it down to a maximum rate of 7%. And they were like, well, you know, what does it matter? We're never going to do that. You know, that was their argument back. And so, you want to have a good debate. You want to have a reasonable debate. But when you have a council that isn't motivated to really look at what was the underlying cause of our, our financial problems, um, it was difficult to have that debate openly. Did you ever experience a moment when you were uh, speaking out about city finances or calling attention to uh, behavior in, in the Rahm Emanuel administration that the Rahm Emanuel administration didn't want to be exposed? where there was a counterpunch uh, on the local level where maybe they released uh, articles about you to their favorite reporters that made you look bad or stirred things up uh, in the local, uh, in, in the 45th Ward to make you look bad, to put you under attack. In other words, to send a message to you that if you speak out too much, uh, you will be punished. <laughs> then I'd have to, I'd have to, the list would be too long to cover in the time we have. I mean, I started out by challenging the, uh, um, there was a, 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 a new, new contracts for concessions at, at O'Hare. And uh, it was a lot of conversations about, you know, the airlines and, and how much they pay for space at, at the gates. And, you know, I had somebody working on my staff who had worked, uh, you know, for the airlines doing some of this stuff. And it just, we were able to reach out to places like Houston and, uh, Atlanta, who had just renegotiated these contracts to seven or 10 year deals. And again, we were talking about another 20, 25 year deal. So that was like my, the opening, you know, opening of the relationship with Rom, where we were, me and Wagusback and a few others were talking from an educated point of view about, we don't have to do things the way Daly did them. We don't have to do these things in quarter of a century measures. We can do these things in shorter term and and get better deals and then adjust to whatever the economy is as we go forward. So, yeah, I mean, I was talking about affordable housing in the 45th Ward in Chicago. And, you know, yeah, they were weaponizing that, um, dragging zoning decisions out that should have taken six months into years long in order to keep the dialogue uh, about an affordable housing project for veterans and the disabled focused on the fear that invariably comes with any kind of, you know, affordable housing discussion. That's just 
part and parcel to the opposition to those things. So yeah, the, the mayor's office was complicit in that and active in that. There's a reason why 5150, the, the, the 75 unit building was approved on my last day in office. And it could have been approved two years before, but it was systemically uh, allowed to drag on so that it was a political noose around my neck. It was approved your last day of office. You mean, was it approved at that city council meeting where uh, the Lincoln Yards TIF was also approved? No, no, this was this was actually the financing for it that came from the from Ida at the at the state level. That that's the that's the fundamental thing that these projects need is is state tax credits in order to be financeable and, and workable uh, to build. So, you know, that had been delayed and delayed. And even in that meeting, it was the first thing on the agenda and they had kicked it to the last thing on the agenda. Um, and, and that's a strategy to make sure that they can get all the other business done and then, you know, uh, you know, call quorum at the end of the day and then things get kicked to the next meeting. Uh, let's take a moment to uh, just to dive into this without going into the uh, specifics of this plan, because that's in many ways ancient history. Let's just deal with the principles at stake here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the moment, I'll um, keep it up to date. At the moment, there's a pack. Uh, that just uh, it came into existence in the last few months, uh, and it's headed by a, a former crony of Rom. I can't remember his Rumler, name. Uh, Mike Rumler. Dude, I, you would know the name. The getting things know. done, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the getting things done, Pat. And when I read about this, uh, I had a laugh. And, and Rumler, that's his name. Uh, and he had this uh, riff he went on uh, where he he, he uh, sort of referred to all them as horses. Uh, and he goes, there's the show horses, and then there's the workhorses, and we want workhorses. I'd be laughing. I was laughing so loud. <laughs> Wait, are you supposed to like it? You're related to a horse? You know, <laughs> it's like all a bunch of Mr. Eds. These horses can talk. Um, but they, they you know, want to put the reins on, and they want yeah. them to have a team of horses in front of the, their, their carts. And you get to pull them up the hill. <laughs> but you get whipped. But you're the ones that get whipped if you don't pull hard enough. <laughs> so, but the, here's the thing. Arena was working. He was trying to get this project going. You know, it's not a show horse. He was a workhorse. He was like Clydesdale on a Budweiser commercial, all right? So he was working. And you guys prevented him from working. Because, I don't know, you wanted to mess with him and make him look bad. And so what what I'm getting at, uh, I see this all the time in Chicago government. You know, we were so ahead of the game with Trump. Trump's a great projection. He projects things on his opponents that he's doing. And that's what Mayor Rahm and Mayor Daley and this kid Rumler, they, this is what they do. They, they project on you what they're doing. So you were working to get this affordable housing project going. And they wanted to send a message to people of 45th Ward that John Arena can't get anything done because they wanted to, what, have synonymous in the minds of the people of the city of Chicago, John Arena, that anyone who dares to criticize anything the mayor says or, or trans, attempts to evaluate the mayor's dumbass ideas, which shouldn't be passed, but will get rubber stamped through the city council, can't get things done. And so Chicagoans being very conservative and cautious in their heart will go vote for, I've heard this so many times, the mayoral puppet because he can get things done. John, it's kind of a weird form of political jujitsu and brainwashing that's at play here. Do you agree with me? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's easier if the administration doesn't have to answer difficult questions on their policies, right? They, you know, from a, you know, if, if, if nobody's asking the questions, then it just, it just goes, it's just easier for them to do what they're doing. Um, and, and that was inconvenient for the administration at the time. It's, you know, I think it's the same for any administration. Um, but if you have sound policies, then you can have a full-throated defense of them. And, you know, in my opinion, that's what you should do. If my policies were, were wrong headed, then somebody should be challenging me on them and, and their outcomes. Um, I would just argue, do it with facts and figures and not with something you read on some crazy Facebook page uh, that says that if you do affordable housing, you know, uh, then the, the end of the world is nigh, right? Uh, you know, these are the things that people said they wanted development. And with in that particular case, it was, you know, one, he can't get things done, but two, what he's going to get done is going to ruin your your neighborhood, right? Ruin your city, make you less safe, you know? And, and, you know, as we were talking before, fear trickles down pretty quick. That's the only thing that trickles down well in, in our world. So, uh, you know, that, that's, that's weaponizing, you know, public policy. And now, you know, obviously now we see a conversation about affordable housing and the, the housing department itself saying we need 120,000 affordable units built in Chicago right now. That's what we need right now to serve the population well. We need policies that uh, stop creating gentrification and and weapon and basically just, you know, inflating that quickly while but never really coming up with the number of units we need embedded in that new development or that new investment uh, to address the housing crisis that we have. So you know, if anything, I'm proud of is that we're finally having a conversation. This isn't just Chicago. This is nationally. There isn't a, a small town, large town, medium town, anywhere in this country that isn't having a conversation about how do we create affordable housing. And, and yeah, there are some places that have, you know, cheap apartments, but that's until the empty warehouse gets turned into something, mm-hmm. right? And as soon as that economic development drops in your neighborhood, that $300 apartment is going to go to $600, but your income isn't going to go up. So in Chicago, this happens all the time, right? Logan Square, Wicker Park, Bucktown, go back in history, 45th Ward, we have $2,000 apartments being being marketed up here, $2,000 a month. My you know, 27-year-old son can't afford that. So we're displacing people from our neighborhoods actively, but then we're telling people, well, if you build affordable housing, nobody here needs that. As if the 45th Ward isn't full of working class, you know, that can't afford a $2,000 a month rent or a $2,000 a month mortgage. And, you know, housing prices, we have 7,000, you know, $700,000 houses on my block now. And I bought my house 20 years ago for 200000 How much are they going for now in your block, roughly, did you say? So There's some houses that are kind of complete rehab, $700,000, $800,000. Well, um, so this leads into uh, the uh, property tax issue, uh, which is very much alive uh, in this current mayoral election and in aldermanic races all over town. Um, the reason 
in my humble opinion, or one of the main reasons uh, that we have uh, when you have any kind of uh, investment in a community that uh, brings uh, new people, wealthier people uh, to that community, that gentrification takes place and people are forced to leave is because of rising property taxes. Our property tax system just guarantees the way we do it, guarantees, uh, John, that uh, as property increases in value, uh, everybody's property taxes go up, whether they can afford it or not, whether they bought their home after or before property started increasing, uh, whether their salaries have increased at the same level as the the rising uh, property or not. doesn't matter. Your property taxes are going to go up. That's the si- system we have. If we wanted to put some kind of control on uh, property taxes, uh, if we wanted to... Uh, put some kind of break on gentrification, we would come to a new system of property taxes, maybe acquisition-based. This is what they have in California, where your property tax is based uh, on the assessment when you purchased your property. No, nobody's going to do that. So it's like we have these discussions, and you're right, these discussions are happening, but in some ways, John, they're like meaningless discussions because the solutions are never on the table. Uh, because what we need the money, we want gentrification to occur. When I say we, I'm talking about the royal we, you know, the city leaders as a whole. Uh, I find this very frustrating. Your thoughts on all this? Well, I mean, it's a it's a complicated property tax system, right? And so, you know, people say, well, if we if we if we reduce property tax, everybody says I'm going to reduce your property taxes. Okay, what are you going to cut? Because right now we pay for we pay for the the corporate budget in Chicago is paid for by property taxes and sales taxes. So, you know, I'm okay with less services. You t- you want to reduce my property taxes? I own a home. I'm okay with that. Just tell me what you're going to take out of the service you're going to get rid of. And there's never anything on the on their side because they know how unpopular that it is. They still want their garbage picked up one twice, you know, once a week. They 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 still want the road repaved. They still want the lights to be on. They want more police officers. So at one, at some point, you're saying fill every every vacancy, right? We 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 hear this in this mayor's race. I'm going to fill every vacancy, right? I'm going to get more police. Okay, how are you going to pay for their pensions? Because our pensions are underfunded. So if you're reducing my property taxes, which is about you know 40 percent of my total. The total income for the city, and you're increasing the police budget beyond the two billion it already is. How are you? How are you going to do this? And there, and there has to be a corresponding math that goes along with that. Now, you know, one way you can increase the income from property taxes and economic, you know, and sales taxes is invest in neighborhoods that have been chronically underfunded. And I like the idea of invest Southwest. I don't know if the mayor has really. Uh, executed against it because we haven't seen the project breaking ground in four years. But yeah, if you have two thirds of the landmass of Chicago that is underperforming in terms of property taxes, well, the levies here somehow you got to fill it up, and so it it comes from the north and east side of Chicago. It's downtown and the north side that is where we we overinvest. We we the that's where the gentrification balloons up and people who have lived in those neighborhoods all of a sudden say, how did my property taxes get to 10, 14,000 dollars? 
well, we're not investing anywhere else. So the idea of Invest Southwest is has complete merit. I worked on a campaign in the in the 25th House District, South Shore, South Chicago, all up and down the lakefront. There are miles of, of vacant lakefront land in Chicago. Um, go down to Orwall Park. It's 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 prairie grass. It's the former South Shore, you know, South Works site. But it's it's lakefront. Now, if we were to build infrastructure to bring train and rail into that, you know, into that area, then it would be just like the, you know, the north side of the lakeshore where people would want to live there. But we don't invest in that kind of basic infrastructure as a city to incentivize that kind of economic development. And then if you bring that area up, if you bring those areas up and, and a couple points of percentage points of property tax increase from near zero or zero creates property tax relief on the north and, and north sides of Chicago. But these are this is the kind of complicated conversation you have to have. You have to talk about investing in another area where the only thing people know about it is the six o'clock news and they see blue and whites with the lights and, and little tags for how many bullets were fired. Because that's the news that comes out of there. So we have to change our perception of neighborhoods, perception of areas. I worked down there for six months and no bullet holes. Great people, people who as as much Jefferson Park <laughs> as I've ever met, friendly and hardworking and manicured lawns and generational. But they see every day we're not invested in, but other parts of the city are. And so we subsidize Lincoln Yards and you have an Alderman Hopkins on the city council floor with a straight face said, if we don't do this, then we're just going to get some, you know, we'll get a couple of houses and maybe a couple of warehouses in Lincoln Park. Yeah. <laughs> Who's <laughs> I mean, like, yes, all you have to do is laugh at that because it's the most ludicrous thing in a eight years on city council that I ever heard. Somebody say with a straight face that we need to incentivize development and build bridges and roads for rich developers in Lincoln Park. Yeah. While we don't build anything on the southwest side, right up against the lake. And that's just flat out racism. That's flat out. It's white people versus black people. All right. So uh, I'm going to put you on the, the hot seat with this one. What is a more ludicrous and unbelievable claim uh, Brian Hopkins assisting that they needed over a billion dollars of pro city property taxes uh, to uh, create development in one of the hottest real estate markets in the city of Chicago, or the Chinese government insisting that balloon was a weather balloon and not a spy balloon. <laughs> I began wow, this show man. with that, which, you know? <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's I don't I don't know how to. <laughs> I think Hopkins is more. I think they ludicrous. are equally ludicrous. I mean, there's a possibility in the realm of possibilities that that was a weather balloon. There's a possibility. There's no possibility that Lincoln Park needs a 1.3 billion dollar. No one will go there. It'll be a swamp, and no one will ever invest in Lincoln Park. Meanwhile, right, literally across the street from Lincoln Yards, there's development going on that was not a not subsidized. Exactly, because it's Lincoln Park. Because the when you have the infrastructure, when you have that basic infrastructure, 
that the trucks can get there. Everything can come in. People, people can get there. And, and if we start talking about Chicago in terms of how can people get to there? How do, how do we evolve the ecosystem of Chicago away from this, you know, just, just over and over again, we just hear, just do things like they used to do. <laughs> but when was it perfect? When, when were we great, Mr. Yeah. Trump, right? We've been operating on a dynamic of haves and have nots for so long that everybody just has this amnesia of the issues that existed then and ignore the people now that are saying, but you know what? We should try something different. We should, we're not talking about blowing up the world and starting over, but we can talk differently about our finances and how we, how we spend money in our police budget. We can talk differently about where we invest and how we invest to create more opportunity for everybody, which then would create relief in property taxes and more opportunity for everybody to have a better job, have a better income, and that would create safer neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, so uh, let's take a mini deep dive. You've already mentioned pensions and property taxes. Uh, we'll get uh, and the and and the police department budgets. Um, we we'll get the pensions. But first, let me deal with this. So I read this uh, interview in the Sun-Times with Brandon Johnson, uh, who is probably the leftiest of the candidates running uh, for uh, mayor in this nine-person race. I don't know. It's, at some point, you could argue whether he or Cam Buckner. Who, he's on, on the left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, sure. yeah, and he was being grilled. I think it was Franz Billen that wrote the story uh, about whether he was going to close police vacancies. Are you going to close the police? And I was just laughing because I think the things that we obsess with in the city of Chicago. Uh, so like closing a police vacancy in a budget is viewed as anti uh, fighting crime because presumably you would fill those vacancies with policemen to fight the crime. Uh, but if you close the vacancies, you could, then then the police overall budget won't go up. Uh, and so it gets boiled down to this, this issue of will you close vacancies? And I'm thinking for as long as I can remember, John, the long I've been following this, goes back to the daily years, Richard M. Daly. I'm not that old. I've studied this under Richard J. Daly. Uh, mayors have used vacancies in the police department to fund the police department. The money comes in, it's allocated uh, to fill a vacancy, but there is <laughs> that vacancy never gets filled. So you can spend the money on other things that have to be paid for. I guess it's how budget directors meet their budgets. Uh, and if you told them anything else, they would laugh at you and say, well, what budgets have you filled lately? Clearly, you don't know how it's done. Mm-hmm. You're, you, you've studied budgets. You've heard all the arguments one way or another. Do you think any mayor mayor uh in the city of chicago will close police vacancies no a hundred percent uh you know filling a hundred percent of of the slots in a police force that's close to ten thousand uh in in its numbers now is never a reality you lose between 600 and a thousand officers to attrition just retirements every year or people leaving and going on to other things. Every year I was in office, people left, people come. It's, we have to stop thinking of this thing as a fixed system. 
that somehow you get to a number and then you always have that number. It's impossible. It's human dynamics don't allow that to be the case. So you have to have open vacancies so that you have a position to fill when, when you do have new candidates, right? So you graduate candidates out of the academy. Well, if, if you have zero vacancies, what are you doing with the candidates, right? You're, you have to bring them in and you're going to have people leave. It's just the nature of things. So that, it's a false premise that you have to fill. The other problem is everybody thinks of an officer as, as only one thing. And we have to expand in, in terms of policing and public safety. We have to expand our thinking of what is an officer in, in the department and what are they charged with doing? And I think Brendan Johnson and some of the other candidates were saying, you know, let's, let's rethink these budgets. Let's rethink who we're hiring into some of these slots. And if we're going to start, you know, uh, you know, looking at the trauma and addressing the trauma and saying, we don't want officers to go into situations with one idea in mind that their life is threatened and they have to use their the, the lethal force. Well, sometimes the problem is that's what that's what they're conditioned to go into. And we do know they have to go into some tough situations, but sometimes it's the response. You don't send um, the wrong equipment to a fire, right? If it's not a high rise, you don't send the hook and ladder. You send, you know, the, the, the truck. So why can't we think of policing that way? If it's not a violent situation, right? It has to have backup on call, but can't we have um, the right response to the situation. And what we've seen across the country is we can be sending the same conditioned officer to every situation and the outcomes, unfortunately, go badly. And then we spend another $100, $140 million on police settlements because we keep doing things the same way. So let's have a conversation about how do we fill some of those vacancies. What is what is the evolution of policing in United States, or at least we can talk about Chicago. Let's evolve policing in Chicago to be right-sized for the situations they're in. Mm. And I think we can start demilitarizing. We can stop spending money on things that police police departments shouldn't have. And I don't feel safer when I have when I go to a Cubs game and I got cops walking down the street with an AR-15 on their chest. I'm sorry. What are you going to do with an AR-15? In a crowd of people, if something happens, what's that weapon going to do? I, I don't, I don't understand it. But I think there are plenty of people having conversations about let's start treating trauma, let's start pulling back, lowering the the intensity of our response, and start instead of inflicting more trauma on a community, reducing the trust. Let's start reversing that trend. It'll take time, and but we have to start some point. So any candidate that's just saying, I'm going to increase, I'm going to hire more police. Of course you are. You're going to, no matter who gets elected, guess what? You're always going to be hiring police. Everybody's going to hire more police. They're going to replace the ones that leave. So let's just talk about who we're hiring, what they're charged with doing, and give them different assignments than just go out there and you know, have a military occupational response to crime as if somehow that's going to solve our problems. If we've seen anything in the last 10 years with police budgets going up and up and up, 
I mean, it went up every single year I was in office. And yet I'm constantly told, well, you want to defund the police then? I don't know. It's, it's almost $2 billion. It was $1.3 billion when I came in in 2011. So how are we defunding the police? Yeah, no, uh, that was a good riff. Uh, defund the police as a concept, as a to, as a weapon to, to smack people around. Uh, and Mayor Laura Lightfoot, it's weaponizing fear, and yeah. and it's and it's basically saying the 1950s ideal of what policing is is the only way you can police. Well, I don't want to go back to the 1950s. That was incredibly caustic to to entire communities, which has led to where we are today by reducing the opportunity for those communities because they're traumatized by the very government they're helping to fund. Weaponizing fear. I believe uh, at the moment that will be, well, that is how uh, Paul Vallis, if he's going to be elected mayor, will be elected mayor, effectively weaponizing fear, heavy emphasis on uh, police, security, hire more police. I've seen... Uh, so much rhetoric. I mean, I've heard so much rhetoric uh, on this front uh, for the last two years, you know, and uh, it there was that moment, John, where there were uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, where people talked briefly uh, about going in different directions. And then there's been the backlash, which is now moving into year three uh, and could determine who our next mayor is. Weaponizing fear uh, is exactly what's going on. Uh, in the city of Chicago, see it in a lot of aldermanic races as well. Yeah. Well, uh, Paul, Paul will, I mean, Paul's go-to is privatization, right? We've seen it with his education plans. He, he, I mean, his, his track record of being a manager is basically a, is corporatizing things. So this is government. Let's stop talking about running it like a business and all that BS, because that's not work either. It's the privatization trends have, have killed us have taken money out of our system and put it in the hands of of the C-suite. You know, so so Paul Vallis, you know, he's not a he's not some new animal. We know his his what he'll do. Um and yeah, he's he's saying we're just going to keep you safer. But more police doesn't do that. It's that's we're, we're we should be beyond that. It's unfortunate that fear, you know, is, is a motivator. And Crime is now, it's been coming down since the pandemic. The, the increase in crime in certain criminal activity has gone up, right? But so we, when I, the end of my term in 2019, it was all about carjacking, right? Well, that was, that's a crime of opportunity of the moment. If there are nobody, is there nobody on the street and you're one of three cars driving down the roads and one person is going to carjack you, well, who's going to stop it? And their getaway path is open. They can get on the expressway and there's zero people on the expressway. So they're gone. We had, we had a, an old woman near a school, St. John's School up here on Montrose. Uh, she was picking up her, her kid from school. There was a cop at the corner and they got carjacked. Well, the, I mean, it was like he was right there. If we had 10 more cops, would that not have happened? You can't make an argument that just more cops is going to stop that from happening. What stops that from happening is all of a sudden the expressway is packed with cars now. People are moving around. Eyeballs are on the street. So what have we seen? As, as the economy's opened up, the reduction in that particular crime of opportunity. 
they'll move on to something else, right? They'll go back to stealing catalytic converters or tires off of cars or whatever they can sell on the market. But this idea that just more police, well, do you want to be Beijing? They're afraid of China, but we're, the, the answer is put up more cameras. In the 45th Ward, the, you know, my successor, well, we're just going to put up more cameras. So we're going to be more surveilled, but a camera doesn't respond to the crime. It just documents that it happened. Mm -hmm. But we have cameras all over the south side. When I was working down there, there isn't a corner where you're, you're not being surveilled. And yet we have crime because the economic opportunity isn't there, because we're not investing in the people that live in those neighborhoods. We're putting every dollar into another camera at $100,000 each mm. versus creating jobs or creating opportunity or programs that would help those, those folks that live in that community that want to come out and clean up lots and do all the things that make a community safer. But having a conversation about money putting put through soft costs versus a hard cost that you can see on a poll is, is a false equivalency to public safety in my, my view. Uh, and uh, this will all lead to the scintillating discussion of pensions. Uh, hiring police also means uh, paying pensions. Uh, ultimately, because uh, municipal employees, police included, uh, get pensions. And I just finished uh, dutifully reading, I believe it was a Tribune article, uh, about uh, the finances of the city of Chicago and how ultimately uh, the same challenges that existed, John, when you were elected, Aldrin back in 2011 are still very much prevalent today. They also existed before you were elected alderman. They've never gone away. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I read they the reporters dutifully uh, put together uh, all the solutions that uh, the, uh, that the various candidates had and then sort of assign you, the reader, the responsibility of reading them. Uh, to which I would then assign you, the reader, the responsibility of trying to distinguish <laughs> any difference between what anyone said and actually putting something they said into a concrete sentence that everyone would understand. I've been following pension talk for 30 years or so, and it usually comes out like this, gobbledygook. <laughs> Because the reality is it costs money. This is an expenditure of money. And back in the 90s, Vallis and Daly, it was really Daly, Vallis was his sidekick that was sent to the schools, spent the pension money, the money that used to go directly in pensions on things that people wanted, literally like more money for teachers, the uh, programs. It was like a golden age in Chicago, a mini golden age. But meanwhile, the pension liability is going, uh, you realize this is the money that's supposed to go to the pension. Shut up, Ben. That's what usually they say, shut up, stop being a hater. So you're not in uh, office anymore, John. You don't have to deal with this uh, anymore. So what wisdom can you give the people of the city of Chicago as to how we will uh, solve our pension obligation crisis without an influx, of course, of federal funds, which doesn't seem to be coming anytime soon. Uh, so what hope do you have for us? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm glad you mentioned an influx of, because, you know, we can bail out, you know, a bank, but we can't bail out the people that serve, you know, our city. And that's everything from the guy who picks up your garbage to police, fire, 
you know, city council members. I am not, I don't have a pension because I was only there for eight years. But point being, we're okay with, with bailing out Chase, but bailing out one of the, the single biggest uh, interest costs um, to most municipalities, uh, which could be done with the stroke of a pen at the federal level, um, we can't possibly do that. Uh, so if, let's set that aside as the real solution to the problem, right? Um, but the, the reality is that in a in a the actuarial you know review of these numbers is they're 30, 40 year numbers we're talking about, right? We're talking about 2040, 2050 and beyond in terms of how to ramp to it. Over the course of the last 10 years, because this issue was I mean, it was the conversation I had at every door. If it was a city worker or a family of a city worker, what are you going to do about pensions? Well, in in the if 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 Rom did anything, and at the at the state level as well, is there were changes to the laws in pension. We have we have three tiers for employees now. So you have tier one, which are the employees that you know, kind of in the historic pension and the benefits there, and then you have tier two and tier three. Well, those benefits go down each each time. We have, I, I can't tell you how many uh, different fees uh, that were changed or implemented that are dedicated towards funding the pensions. So your water bill, yeah, your water bill's gone up over the last couple of years, but a portion of that money is by law dedicated to go into the pension funds. And I think that's one of the critical things is now there are dedicated streams going into it where when Paul Vallis came in and somehow solved the problem at, at CPS, it was to not fund the pensions is how he put money into other stuff. He just didn't put money into it. Well, now by law, you can't do that. You have to put the money to these things. The, the new casino, right? We've talked for years about having a casino. That money is, is dedicated towards pensions. We can't, we can't put all the money towards pensions. We still have to serve the city. So we should have a conversation about dedicating funds to go towards lead, lead pipe abatement and other important things that are affecting our children for generations to come. But there's a, a, there was a big push to make sure that there were dedicated streams to start going into that. And also making sure we're not putting our money into risky investments, which is exactly what was going on with the credit default swaps. Yeah. So we would have been in great shape if we had just put our money into bonds, right? But they were promising eight, 10% returns on these investments. And yeah, and there was a couple of years when we had really high returns prior to the housing market crashing in the late 2000s. But if you had just put those things into a 4% bond, you'd have had a straight line of increased revenue and increase that would have been reinvested and reinvested. So it's about talking about what are you putting the money into. People should be looking at what the treasurer is doing with our money and how it's being invested, right? Those are the places we should be looking. An individual alderman cannot, no matter what he thinks he can do, cannot fully fund the pensions in, with, with one fiftieth of a vote on the city council. You can vote for a good plan or vote for a bad plan, and that's how they should be evaluated. But they can't promise they're going to solve the problem that is a generational problem. So we need to open up the window of how we say, I'm gonna solve this problem. Look at what's been done, but look at, are you gonna continue the good policies 
Or are you going to play games behind the scenes about where the money's going and fund more police? And then if we have those kind of conversations about the scope of a four-year term versus a 40-year problem, and stop saying in this term, we expect our elected officials to solve gargantuan long-term actuarial issues. Let's be real. It's on us as voters to be educated about this and make decisions about what that job an alderman can do or cannot do. And an alderman can't hire more police. He can ask for more police in his district and he can get them. Me, a guy who was told, I hate police because, you know, I don't know why, because it was, it was the thing to say. There were 65 more officers in the 16th district from when I came in to when I left. That was because we asked for more officers to deal with certain situations. But that didn't change the fact. And, and now it didn't mean that we didn't have crime increase in 2019 because the pandemic happened and the world changed. So let's get off of one more officer is going to be the one officer that breaks, you know, the camel's back of crime. It's a ridiculous notion that in it, that a certain number is the number we have to get to. It's how we use them. It's how we fund the things around uh, crime and addressing what are we, how are we investing in our youth? How are we giving them economic opportunity? How are we giving neighborhoods opportunity? to change their trajectory? How are we investing in the infrastructure in those neighborhoods? Those are the things that were, over a period of time, change crime in neighborhoods and reduce crime in neighborhoods. Uh, All right, before I let you go, uh, I need to uh, address the possibility that I've been unfair to Mayor Rahm. And uh, Kenny Davis, dear friend of the show, a great guy, Ken Davis, is always uh, teasing me that I'm unfair to him on the issue of the CTA, that uh, repairing the red line, fixing up the red line was a great benefit that Rob did. So I dutifully tried to work that into every sentence I or every comment I made about Rob. On the other hand, he did fix the red line. Like he himself was on the red line with a hammer. Um, <laughs> so uh, do you he, think... He lobbied, he lobbied Congress to get the Tiger funds to do that. Yes. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I'll give him credit for that. That was uh, him using his knowledge of, of of Washington to get something done. Yeah, and he also came up with the um, uh, the transit TIF concept, where he removed the schools as a contributor, which made it yeah. less burdensome to his school's budget. So I give him credit for that. Uh, how about this? I'm giving you so much credit, Rom. Um, <laughs> so do you think he deserves credit for uh, making sure what that there's a guaranteed stream of money? going to fund the the pensions do you think we're a little in a better position now with our pension obligations than we were in 2011 when you took office um i i think the possibility is there it's just if we don't fuck up the end game right it's like it's always long-term things have to be consistent right we, we didn't get into this problem overnight and we won't get out of it overnight mm-hmm. so yeah he he did things like that was what was going on in other cities. And he looked at that and he said, and there was calls from the city council to say, we need to put money into this. We are willing to vote for a budget if it dedicates money to these particular problems. So that's where the council and the mayor need to work together or find a path to a, a yes vote. For me, it was always, 
I'm no until I'm a yes on the budget, until the budget can do as much, uh, address as many of the priorities as I want to see get done. Knowing that I'll never get to 100% of my priorities getting, getting fully funded, but at least knowing that there's an attempt to get there and there's a collaboration on that conversation. If the council does its work, that I hope it will, being the internal optimist that I am, the new council having these conversations with, with whoever the next mayor is, whether it's Lori or whoever, is about staying consistent and not taking our eye off that ball and knowing that we've got 100 balls in the air, that we have to deal with a lot of different issues and no one thing is going to solve all of our problems. So the, if, if people want help picking a candidate, the candidates that say, if you're not safe, nothing else matters, just boot them right off the freaking list <laughs> because everything matters, right? It's the most ridiculous statement in the history of politics. Yeah, you want, if, if you're dead, nothing matters. But if you're alive, there's a whole bunch of things that matter. And being safe is one of them, but also all of the other things that the city has to do to provide to, for a healthy economy, for a healthy uh, quality of life, those things are important too. And to try to myopically say one thing is, is the only thing means you're not ready for the job. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think there's, that's a coded message. Uh, when they say that it's well, a coded message yeah. and people understand there's... what the message is and they're going to vote accordingly. We all know what the coded message is all about. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's code talk. Uh, anyway, that's, uh, you, you closed, uh, with a, another local example of a statement that's more ludicrous, uh, than the Chinese explanation that it was really a, a weather balloon. I think that <laughs> all that matters is one issue. Uh, I still think the most ludicrous comment of them all remains the champion, Brian Hopkins, insisting that one of the wealthiest, fastest developing communities in the city of Chicago desperately needs a property tax handout for more investment. That that one moment almost knocked me out of my chair. (laughs) Number one. It's been number one at the box office since 2019, ladies and gentlemen. Casey Kasem. All right, uh, John Arena, so much fun talking politics with you, man. We're going to have to bring you back. You're free. You're liberated. You can say whatever you want. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you're a Anytime. Man. Anytime, my friend. All right. Very good. That's John Arena, former alderman of the 45th Ward. He's got a lot to say about politics. Saw it up close in his eight years in the city council. And it was a blast having you on the show. Thank you very much, John. I also want to thank producer Chris doing an outstanding job. And as I always say, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody.